You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jam ahead? Here's another great podcast to not only entertain, but educate while you wait. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And we host Oh No Lit Class, a comedy literature podcast that tells you all the strange and sexy facts you never knew about the books you had to read in school. Every episode is a fun foul-mouthed spark notes for your ears, filled with author bios, plot summaries, bad impressions, and Megan singing. It's mostly you that sings. No, I sing well, she sings poorly. That's not true. So come listen to us ruin classic literature one book at a time at onolitclass.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh no, Lit Class. We're for kids. No, we're not. On our humble little show, we seek to illuminate the dark corners of knowledge and open the door to history. If you want to open an actual door to history, you'll have to do it without a doorknob. The patent for the doorknob, which is to say, a round handle that turns to move a latch inside the door, wasn't filed until 1878. So next time you're watching a movie set during the Civil War, Keep an eye out to see if their latches are historically accurate. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Most of us know what to do if you're rendering aid to someone who can't breathe or whose heart has stopped. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, the kiss of life, known as cardiopulmonary resuscitation when you combine it with chest compressions, is such an ingrained concept in today's society that it seems hard to imagine that it was created the same year Elvis Presley released Heartbreak Hotel. Similar methods for life preservation have been around since at least the 18th century. Techniques might include laying a drowning victim on their stomach on a sideways barrel and rolling them back and forth, which is also where we get the expression to have someone over a barrel. It was only 1956 when Peter Safar and James Elam refined the existing methods to what we know today. The following year, their book, The ABC of Resuscitation, was released, in which Safar describes the airway, breathing, and circulation model. Safar was also instrumental in educating the public about CPR, teaming up with a Norwegian toy maker to develop the resuscitation training mannequin still used in modern first aid today. Bonus fact, the classic female CPR dummy is named for Sussie Ann. Her face is based on the death mask of an unidentified woman who drowned in the Seine in Paris in the 1880s. The same year that saw Mel Brooks's double victory with the releases of Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, was also the year when the first choking victim received the Heimlich maneuver. In 1974, Dr. Henry Heimlich was a successful thoracic surgeon 
and one of the first doctors to perform a particular operation to fix a damaged esophagus. Heimlich wanted to do more, though. Looking for a simple method that would save the lives of people who were choking, he and his team started experimenting on beagles. He realized that when he pushed upwards on the dog's diaphragm, compressing its lungs, a tube placed in the dog's throat became dislodged, allowing it to breathe normally again. Because he knew a peer-reviewed study in an established medical journal would take too long to get published, Heimlich got creative and crowdsourced his research. He wrote an article for the journal Emergency Medicine called Pop Goes the Cafe Coronary. Cafe Coronary being the nickname doctors and emergency responders had for choking deaths. Explaining how to do his method and asking people to try it if they encountered anyone choking on food. The Chicago Daily News then ran an article on it and word spread quickly. Heimlich championed his technique, marketing it and himself like a brand. He became a celebrity doctor, appearing on the most popular TV shows and selling posters and t-shirts. He spent years trying to discredit slaps on the back, publicly denouncing them as death blows. Studies partially funded by Heimlich, surprise, surprise, backed up his claim, and by the mid-80s, the Surgeon General and Red Cross were on board. Then Heimlich apparently got greedy. He began to argue that the Heimlich maneuver should be used on drowning victims as well, and people suffering from asthma attacks. It doesn't work for those things. The medical community also criticized Heimlich for his malariotherapy studies, in which he infected AIDS patients with malaria, believing that the increased body temperature caused by the disease would jumpstart their immune system. Eventually, Dr. Heimlich's questionable actions led the American Red Cross to change some of its first aid protocols in 2006. It changed the name Heimlich Maneuver to Abdominal Thrusts and updated its protocol to the following. Administer five blows to the back by hitting the palm of your hand against the area between the shoulder blades. If that doesn't work, perform five abdominal thrusts. Repeat if needed. If the victim falls unconscious, Begin performing chest compressions with rescue breaths and have someone call 911. It would be a few more years before a seemingly obvious fact would find a broad audience in medicine. Prior to the Second World War, surgery was practically a death sentence for infants, in no small part due to complications from anesthesia, which can cause cardiac arrest and brain damage. Their little bodies couldn't withstand the drugs. Discouraged, surgeons started to wonder if anesthesia for infants was even necessary. In the early 40s, clinical psychologist Myrtle McGraw began to study the reactions of newborns to various stimuli, including pinpricks. Her experiment showed that babies did not have a specific reaction to pinpricks in most situations. McGraw assumed that the response they saw in infants was startle rather than pain and published a paper stating babies don't perceive pain the way that adults do. Her research was integrated into medical textbooks and became standard thinking. Over the next three decades, it was common to perform surgery on newborns and infants using no anesthesia or pain relief, just a neuromuscular block to temporarily paralyze the patient. But pinpricks aren't surgery. 
1985, a premature baby died after surgery to tie off a blood vessel near his heart. His family learned afterwards that the procedure had been performed without palliative drugs, only a muscle relaxant. They took this information to the press, who ran with the story, alerting the public to what had been happening for decades. In 1987, the year of the Black Monday stock market crash, the American Academy of Pediatrics declared that it was no longer ethical to perform surgery on preterm babies without anesthetics. However, despite that, many procedures are performed on newborns without the benefit of analgesia. Hopefully, though, change is on the horizon. A pioneering study at Oxford University used functional MRIs to scan the brains of 10 healthy newborns between 1 and 6 days old and 10 healthy adults 23 to 36 years old. The researchers poked subjects' feet with a special instrument. The team found that 18 of the 20 brain regions activated in adults were also activated in babies, including brain regions that tell us when a given stimulus is on the body and those that tell us a stimulus is unpleasant. The brains of the newborns exhibited the same response to a weak stimulus as the adults did to a stimulus four times as strong, suggesting that babies might be more sensitive to pain than adults. From basic care of babies to basic rights for women. American women got the vote in 1920, but their sistren in Switzerland had to wait quite a while longer. For more than a century, Swiss men had repeatedly voted down women's suffrage in one of the oldest democracies in the world, where public balloting began in 1291. Swiss women have only been allowed to vote since 1971, the same year Disney World opened. This was also the year that the U.S. lowered the voting age to 18 to match the minimum age for being drafted into military service. In one Swiss canton, appenzell Osserhode, women weren't given voting rights until 1989. In neighboring appenzell Inderhoden, the federal government had to impose the change in 1991 and then only after four local women filed a lawsuit. The path to voting rights in Australia began in 1850, with the right to vote for all adult male British subjects, which actually included Aboriginal men. Women's suffrage came in 1894, but voting rights for Aboriginal people were cut back in the first half of the 20th century, after the White Australia policy specifically excluded, quote, any Aboriginal native of Australia, Asia, Africa, or the islands of the Pacific except New Zealand. In 1949, Parliament granted the right to vote to Aboriginal people who'd completed military service, but in a step back, in 57, the government declared most Aboriginals were wards of the state, and thus not allowed to vote. It would be 1962 before the government finally gave the right to vote to all Aboriginal people. But it was illegal to encourage Aboriginal people to vote likely because of the racist misconception that they might be easier to manipulate. Portuguese women didn't get the vote until 1976, and they had to have a revolution to get it. It was 2011 before Saudi Arabian women were permitted to vote. As of this recording, the only country without female suffrage is... Vatican City. The only thing you can vote on there is the next pope, 
only cardinals vote for popes, and only men can be cardinals, so... Vatican City itself is younger than even I'd expected, having been created by the Lateran Treaty in 1929. Double bonus fact, Vatican City has its own railway, despite the fact that the rail lines are shorter than most airport runways. In addition to the Holy Roman Empire, the other ancient empire that might spring to mind is the Ottoman Empire. Why is the Ottoman Empire on a list of surprisingly recent things? Because the Ottoman Empire didn't cease until the year Judy Garland was born, 1922. For six centuries, the Ottomans, named after the Osman dynasty in Turkey, ruled over three continents and seven seas. In Eastern Europe, from Vienna to Crimea, all around the Black Sea and the Caucasus, in Mesopotamia, in Arabia from Cairo to Aden, in the Mediterranean from Greece to Alexandria. During the last century of its existence, the Ottoman Empire began to lose its provinces, losing Greece and Serbia within a year, and others following soon after. By 1885, the territories in Europe were reduced to Macedonia, Albania, and Thrace, and they lost the larger of the two in the Balkans War of 1912-1913. The Ottomans also lost control of North Africa. Algiers was taken by France in 1830 and Tunisia in 1881. Britain occupied Egypt in 1882, and Italy annexed Libya in 1912, though they were able to hold on to their Asian provinces a little while longer. The collapse and extinction of the Ottoman Empire was a consequence of World War I. The government made the mistake of entering the war on the side of the Central Powers, the World War I analog of the Axis, and the defeat of Germany meant the end for the Ottomans. On November 1, 1922, the Ottoman dynasty was abolished and the empire came to an end. A year later, in its place, stood the Republic of Turkey. This story puts the sorrow of Chicago Cubs fans into perspective. The Cubs haven't won a World Series since 1908, back when there were still teams like the Brooklyn Superbaz and the Boston Doves, 14 years before the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Rather than falling, let's go for something uplifting. We've recently gotten a five-star review through Apple Podcast from CaliCat03. Moxie is an incredible host and is such a great voice for podcast. I'm going to be 100% honest and tell you I never really enjoyed history class in school. However, this podcast sprinkles in history in a very appealing and interesting way, so you've grabbed my attention, Moxie. Keep up the great work. Now, we only have one review left to read after this, so if you've been meaning to leave your opinion, there's no time like the present. You can leave it on Apple Podcast or through our Facebook page, facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Be sure you put it under reviews and not as a post on the page. That way it will also automatically display on our website, yourbrainonfacts.com. For everyone who responded to the Facebook and Twitter question with their guesses as to when the crossword puzzle was created, the answer was 1913. It was devised by a 19-year-old British emigre, Arthur Wynne. Though crosswords became all the rage, with the first crossword book published in 1924, the word crossword wouldn't be added to the dictionary until 1933. 
Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Time is timeless, right? The idea of all of us agreeing to what time it is, is not. For centuries, checking the time meant checking the sun. Even after mechanical clocks became common, those clocks were still set to solar time, which meant that your clock could be different from the clock of a friend a few towns away. This was fine at first because there was no real-time communication or any need for things to be that consistent. Trains changed all of that. With every town keeping its own time, the people in charge of the rail lines didn't only need to concern themselves with the local time, they had to worry about what time it was at the terminus, plus every junction stop along the way. The main train station in Philadelphia used to have six clocks showing six different times. In December of 1847, the British used Greenwich Mean Time to institute time zones keep their trains running on schedule. It still took another 33 years before standardized time zones were made law in Great Britain, and three more before time zones based on the GMT became law in the U.S. By 1929, most other countries around the world had also adopted the hourly time zone system. Some countries to this day don't, though. China, despite being about 3,200 miles or 5,200 kilometers wide, is a single time zone, not the three it logically should be. To learn more about time zones that make no sense, squiggly things that happen around the international dateline, or where I got the information about the Vatican City rail line, check out the YouTube channel Half as Interesting. With life expectancies getting longer, we have more and more family members of past U.S. presidents remaining, including grandchildren of John Tyler. Not great-great-grandchildren, just grandchildren of our 10th president. Born in 1790, 
John Tyler took office in 1841 after William Henry Harrison died. Unless she went to the eponymous community college here in Richmond, that I dropped out of twice, you probably don't know much else about him. How is it possible for there to be living grandchildren of the 10th president during the tenure of the 45th? The men of the Tyler family seem to have a habit of having children very late in life. Lion Gardner Tyler, one of President Tyler's 15 children, was born in 1853. He fathered Lyon Jr. in 1924 and Harrison Ruffin Tyler in 1928. As of this recording, both are still alive. We think of the abolition of slavery as coming at the end of the American Civil War. But it wasn't until February 7, 2013, that the state of Mississippi submitted the required documentation to ratify the 13th Amendment meaning it had never officially abolished slavery. The amendment had been adopted in December of 1865 with the necessary three-fourths of the then 36 states' vote. Mississippi, however, was a holdout. At the time, state lawmakers were upset that they had not been compensated for the value of the freed slaves, and so they refused to sign off. Though slavery does still exist in the world today, with by some counts more slaves today than during the Atlantic slave trade, the last country to officially outlaw slavery was the Western Saharan nation of Mauritania in 1981. Slavery wouldn't be criminalized in Mauritania until 2007. Officials repeatedly denied that it existed, but activists and former slaves spoke of the centuries-old practice, a relic of the trans-Saharan slave trade when Arabic-speaking Moors raided African villages. Up to 800,000 people in the nation of 3.5 million remain chattels, most of which are from the Heritan ethnic group. Some Heritans are born into slavery, and their masters are able to sell them or buy them for gifts. They essentially have no rights, receive little education or pay, and may not inherit property or give testimony in court. There have also been reports of government collusion with Arab Berbers into intimidating slaves who break free from their masters. Definitely some room to work there. Originally created in 1789 as a more humane form of execution, the guillotine is as iconically French as having quiche and an orangina at a sidewalk cafe. Not croissants, though, because those are Austrian, but you knew that from our episode Phenomenom nom. You don't have to go back and listen to it, though. The audio was pretty rough on those early episodes. Beheadings were a popular spectacle of the day. People turned out in droves to see them. Souvenirs were made and sold. Tiny, fully functional toy guillotines were marketed to children. And the executioners became national celebrities. Dr. Joseph Guillotine wasn't thrilled when the public began referring to the device with his name, and his family later petitioned the government to have it officially changed. While it saw brisk business during the French Revolution, its career wasn't limited to the 18th century. Germany used the guillotine as the method for state execution in the 1920s and 40s, dispatching over 16,000 people in a span of about 10 years. The guillotine didn't retire then, either. Convicted murderer 
Hamida Jandubi became the last person to meet his end by the National Razor when he was executed by the guillotine in 1977. That's the same year the world was introduced to Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader in Star Wars A New Hope. The same year Apple was founded and silent film star Charlie Chaplin died. The Machine's 189-year career only officially came to an end in September of 1981, when France abolished capital punishment for good. About the same time, the MS-DOS programming language was created. Before the electric chair, the gas chamber, or lethal injection, the firing squad was a prevalent method of execution. It's been used in both military and civilian penal process since the invention of firearms, and thus it feels a bit antiquated. You picture a captured spy in the U.S.-Mexican War, or a soldier in the French Foreign Legion tied to a post in Algiers. That's why it surprised even this reporter that not only was the most recent state execution by firing squad during the second Obama administration, there are applications for more. On June 18, 2010, convicted murderer Ronnie Lee Gardner became the third man to die by firing squad since the Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty in 1976. The process is basically how you envision it, but in modern firing squads, one of the five shooters will have a blank round. This allows those who volunteer for the detail to tell themselves they may not have been the one to fire the lethal round. Recent concerns about the predictability of lethal injection and even shortages of the drugs are forcing states to review their options. In March 2015, Utah Governor Gary Herbert signed legislation making the firing squad an authorized method of death if the drugs required for lethal injection are unavailable. Though the Georgia Supreme Court denied a petition for a firing squad because their state had no protocol for it. On the whole, firing squads have gone the way of hanging in favor of the modern methods that are deemed more humane. Hanging, for example, requires a surprising amount of skill on the part of the executioner. You have to account for the person's weight when setting the length of the rope, and it's essential to have the knot in just the right place to break their neck, otherwise the person has a long strangling ahead of them. And there are other ways it can go wrong. Eva Dugan was the first woman to be executed by the state of Arizona. Something went splendidly wrong when the hangman misjudged the drop and her head came right off. The last hanging in the United States was in 1896. I'm sorry, I meant 1996. The year that gave us Bill Clinton's second term, hit singles from the Gin Blossoms and Tony Braxton and Dolly the Clone Sheep. Murderer Billy Bailey chose hanging over lethal injection, declaring that he wouldn't be put to sleep like a dog. The state of Delaware dismantled their gallows immediately afterwards, but other states do offer hanging as an option, so there's no telling how long Bailey will hold the title of the last man hanged in the United States. Bread is one of the world's oldest prepared foods. There's evidence humans were whipping up a crude form of bread 30,000 years ago. Sliced bread, however, has been around for less than a century. The first automatically sliced commercial loaves were produced on July 6, 1928, in Chillicothe, Missouri, using a machine invented by Otto Rohwetter. 
Rovetter's quest to make sliced bread a reality was not without its challenges. A 1917 fire destroyed his prototype and blueprints, and he also faced skepticism from bakers, who thought factory sliced loaves would go stale too quickly or fall apart. Nevertheless, in 1928, Rovetter's rebuilt, power-driven, multi-bladed bread slicer was put into service at Frank Bench's Chillicothe Baking Company. Pure tangent here, but why are there so many Chillicothe's? I've already been to Chillicothe, Ohio and Chillicothe, Texas. Is there a Chillicothe in your state? Pop over to our Facebook or our Twitter feed, which is at Twitter slash Moxie and let me know. Sliced bread didn't take long to become a hit around the United States, even as some bakers contended it was a fad. And by 1930, it could be found in most towns across the country. Factory-produced loaves were designed to be softer than those prepared at home, because the bread-buying public had come to equate the squeezable softness with freshness. The timing, therefore, was right for an automatic slicing machine, because these softer, modern loaves would be impossible to slice cleanly at home. To put the timing of sliced bread into perspective, beloved actress Betty White would already have been six years old when commercially sliced bread became a thing. Bonus fact, Betty White's full name is Betty Marion White. Her parents wanted to call her Betty, but they didn't want to risk people calling her any other short form of Elizabeth, because they didn't like any other short form of Elizabeth, so they cut out the middleman and named her Betty. Going to the local market for milk, bread, and eggs used to mean giving your list to the attendant behind the counter and waiting for him to gather your order, just like in an old West General store, all the way up until 1916. That's when store owner Clarence Saunders created Piggly Wiggly, the first self-service grocery store. For the first time, customers got to, and had to, pick out their own groceries. This new setup had lots of advantages. The store could lower prices because grocery shopping wasn't labor-intensive in terms of staffing, and the store could accommodate more customers at one time since they weren't waiting for a clerk to wait on them. Things were a little more arduous for the customers for those first two decades, though. They had to carry their selections around in crates or baskets. If you've ever shopped at Aldi without a quarter, you understand how quickly that gets heavy. You can just ask the cashier for a quarter. They're supposed to give you one if you need one. Then Sylvan Goldman rolled out his folding basket carriers at the Humpty Dumpty supermarket chain he owned in Oklahoma in 1937. Goldman's original design was brilliantly simple. It involved placing a basket on the seat of a folding chair with wheels on the legs, though it took several iterations to get the shiny, maneuverable carts we know today. The first UPC-marked item ever scanned at a retail checkout was at the Marsh Supermarket in Troy, Ohio at 8.01 a.m. on June 26, 1974, and it was a 10-pack of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum. The inventor of the Universal Product Code, George Lauer, tested designs such as a bullseye and something that looked like a sunset before settling on the square design we know today. He received no royalties for his invention, and his employer, IBM, didn't patent it so that it would be free for anyone and everyone to use. Another bonus fact, 
barcode scanners read the white lines, not the black lines. That's why they can be hard to read if something is obstructing the edge of the UPC. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I'll leave you with one more thing that's more modern than you'd think. Teenagers. People aged 13 to 19 have been around forever, but the concept of a defined period in which people experience the ravages of hormones and aren't quite children and not quite adults is a 20th century development. The word teenager didn't appear in print until 1940, and even then it was used to describe the younger siblings of men who had gone to fight in the Second World War. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word plop. Plop. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>